So just a, a, a few points before we go. Some of the issues I think we need to talk. First of all, Michel Barnier is not going to run. I, I'm, I'm not sure who in Brussels uh, floated that idea. It, it, it's stupid. Um, um. Welcome back to the latest episode of Uncommon Decency, your weekly podcast on the big European debates of our time. And this week, I'm hijacking the show and making it all about La France and its chaotic political landscape. How can anyone govern a nation that has 246 different kinds of cheese? Charles de Gaulle once said. But there isn't just the smell of camembert in the French air these days. There's also a distinct smell of electoral gunpowder. So... It's time we do a special wargaming episode on the 2022 French presidential election. And I'm sure we are going to forget 15 different issues we could be covering. And the candidate that just might win in 2022, we might not even mention on this show. But we are staking our next out, which is risky in France, to map out what the election might just look like. So, if you are listening to us in 2023, and somehow Michel Barnier is the president, please don't be too harsh. Before we begin, if you enjoy the show, please consider subscribing on your favorite podcast app, rating us and writing a review. It always puts a smile on our faces to see your feedback and pushes us to keep getting the crème de la crème of guests. So, Francois, let, let's get right into the heart of it. Um, how's the race looking uh, in your judgment? What are, what are some of the things to be aware of in terms of just the state of play and the major parties that are going to be in, in the running in May uh, 2022? What, are, what, what should our, our audience just be aware of going into this? Well, it's, it's a very empty uh, landscape, Phil. It's both very empty and very, and very compact at the same time. It's very empty because traditionally um, in these presidential elections, you'd have people who had been lining up for that election for years, two main parties, smaller parties around, it'd be very clear who'd be running and, and, and who wouldn't be. Uh, nowadays, it's much more complicated because uh, we know for a fact that Le Pen will be running, she said so. Uh, there's little doubt Macron will be running. But the rest of it is really open. And it's, very, it's not very clear that the right-wing party will even fill the candidate. It might have to support someone that is not part of the party. On the left, it's not clear whether there's going to be one, two, three, four, five, six, seven candidates. Um, so it, it's... it's there's a, lot of, there's a big void, and at the same time, there's a lot of candidates at the same time, but it's not very clear which will um, uh, rise on top. Now, what is pretty clear at this point is it's a, it's a two-person race between Le Pen and Macron as of now in polls. The rest of them are pretty far behind, and that is fair to some extent because they have dominated French politics over the past five years. Um, if people have been following, remember, the European elections in 2019 were won by Le Pen and, and, and Macron came in second position, very far away from the rest of the opposition. So yeah, but it's, it is the state of France. It is Macron, Le Pen and, and the rest. So let me let me jump right in and just ask you, you know, I, I, uh, short short uh, while ago, I was I was speaking to one of the um, uh, one of the dear friends of the show, uh, Anne Elisabeth Moutet, who reports on French life kind of for the Anglo-American media. And she wasn't all that convinced that uh, 2022 is going to be a reenactment of 2017, right? She didn't. She just didn't see it as kind of a foregone conclusion. She was hedging for, for I guess, the possibility of someone like Xavier Bertrand, who I was hoping you could give us some some uh, background on who this uh, new center-right 
personality is. Uh, but what are uh, to, to, to guess? Just just kind of uh, begin from from uh, from the start. What is the um, you just mentioned? Uh, why would the center right kind of the the um, the um, the the present iteration of the Gaullist sensibility, right? This, this party has gone through all of these different kind of uh, configurations from like RPR, MPR, UMP, Les Républicains. Why would this political family of sort of like center-right, souverainist, uh, Gaullist, um, uh, kind of a, kind of a, the, 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 why would the French center-right not decide to not fill the candidate in the first round? And, uh, and why, why would they endorse uh, Macron? Well, I think since since so in twenty seventeen, a centre right party, Les Républicains, was convinced they would win. The socialist president was so weak, François Hollande, he didn't even decide to run again, and they were convinced they would easily um, easily reach for the runoff against Le Pen and crush Le Pen pretty easily. Now, their candidate François Fillon was chosen in a primary, in a tense primary. And his candidacy essentially got uh, imploded over corruption scandals and uh, um, a lot of kind of personal life scandals really crippled his candidacy and allowed Macron to to fight against Le Pen in the runoff and, and win. Never since it has been limping. Um, it had it had uh, it fielded a, what I thought was an interesting candidate, François Xavier Bellamy, who's an intellectual, he's a philosopher, one not. But François Xavier Bellamy couldn't couldn't resist the kind of forces on his right and on his left dividing the party. You've got a lot a lot of former MPs, um, a lot of a lot of electorates going to Macron, and to some extent, there's also that same forces pushing electorate and MPs towards the towards the pen. And in the middle, you know, it is kind of uh, between a rock and a hard place, so to say. Mm. But he was a um, European. Uh... Uh, he was uh, he led a European ticket, right? Was he ever in that sort of like wide field of like? Um, and, and just to pick you up on on where you left off, um, it, there 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 is a lot to be learned from how the center right kind of went about their 2017 race uh, going into 2022. There's a lot there that we can work with and, and try to glean kind of what's 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 going to be ahead of us. And in that race, when uh, if we uh, want rewind back to 2017, that was indeed a very um, a very hopeful and optimistic race for the right in the initial stages, right? We had like this sort of like open field with a lot of the uh, baron de la droite, right? A lot, of, a lot of the kind of center right quadra, as they're called in, in this country, um, kind of, um, you know, kind of catching, kind of pitching their their um, their um, personalities, right? And what it narrowed down to was a sort of a a um, a, um, uh, a a a, a um, uh, an internecine sort of like race between Fillon. Juppé and uh, Sarko, right? Uh, and, and I think it was really, I think what, what you just explained there was really important because the center right really took it, it really was already like running in the runoff, right? It was already like campaigning to the wider electorate. And then Fillon got drafted as a sort of the Thatcherite, sort of hard, hardcore reformist uh, candidate. And um, and then he stumbled over uh, Penelope Gate, right? And, um, uh, you know, um, it, so let me ask you this: Is is the center right? What is the cent, what, What's what did the center right learn from 2017? And if you could maybe give us some background of kind of what are what are the names that are um, that are shaping up to run in 2022? You mentioned that. What would some of the others be? And are any of these people like 
did have any of these candidates learned anything from 2017? So it actually depends who you ask. Those who liked Fillon will say there's nothing to change, or there's some things to change, but not much to change. He was sunk by the personal scandals. Those who disagreed with Fillon's line said, scandals are everything. The uber Thatcherite agenda scared a lot of people as well. And so, you know, depending how economically uh, liberal or status you are, you'll have a very different answer. I, I'm, I'm not sure there's an easy fix. You know, it's very hard when you're being crushed on your right and on your left um, to 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 have a solution. Now, there are some candidates in the running. One of them is the most, I think, probably the strongest on paper, Xavier Bertrand. Xavier Bertrand is this right-wing politician who is in in charge of a northern Hauts-de-France region. He's been doing quite well there. Uh, he's quite popular in the north. And thing is, I, I can't really distinguish him politically from Macron, but he's been doing a very good job at identifying himself as being this local politician who understands France and its social issues a lot better than Macron, who is this Parisian who is disconnected from the local political realities, who's arrogant, who represents technocracy and, and whatnot. Now, some of it may be true because Macron had no local uh, local experience, he, uh, no uh, traditional political career, and, and Bertrand does. That said, I can't really distinguish him politically beyond that kind of difference, which part of it seems like a bit of a, a savvy marketing from, from Bertrand. Another one is, is Valérie Pécresse. She is the head of the uh, Ile-de-France region, uh, the region that includes Paris. And I, I think she's a weaker version of, of, of Bertrand. Um, I Similar profile, same age. Uh, she's in charge of a kind of a richer region. He, he's in charge of a more of a, more of a post-industrial region. But I, I don't see that much of a difference. And then you have kind of... What's interesting about both of them is they both left Les Républicains. They both left the party because they disagreed with a leader back then, uh, Laurent Wauquiez, who's... Um, now uh, uh, left the party is no longer charged. They both left and disagreed in because they, they didn't think belonging to this party was a source of strength anymore. They thought they could be stronger on their own, which says a lot about how divided and how weak uh, the right is. But that, that said, if you look at polls, Pécresse isn't doing that well in polls, but if you look at polls, Xavier Bertrand is at 16%, which is, in, which is pretty good, which is pretty good for, for, for someone who's running on his name only and and in fact, he's a decent um, head of a region. Sixteen percent. He's he's a few few points behind Macron and Le Pen. But you know, who knows? He wins a few. Macron loses a few, or he could be in a good position. So he's he's polling at seven sixteen percent in the open field. He's he's polling sixteen percent against uh, Macron's uh, fifty three to fifty nine percent and uh, MLP's, uh, Le Pen's uh, 47, right? So that's kind of how the races, that's kind of how the, the polls are. are uh... Well, well, yeah, but to, but to be fair, the 53% and 47% are, are in the runoff. In, in, the, fir- in the first round, in first round, um, it depends on which pollster and, and, and which scenario and which candidate, but uh, Macron and Le Pen would be in the mid, mid-20s and Bertrand is in, is in 16%. Uh, it's a pretty wide gap, but you know we've seen we've seen wild, uh, crazier comebacks uh, than that. So you know I agree with what, with what Moutet says. I am um, I think historically when you are a student of French uh, presidential election histories, you you see a pattern. First of all, there's a few patterns. First of all, the scenario which is um, dominant in polls a year to a year and a half before the actual election, 
never gets respected by the lecturer. The lecturer would look at it in scoff and just get rid of it completely every single time. Um, nobody would have thought Macron would be running, yet alone winning, um, a year and a half before the election, and yet he did. In 2012, people thought that it would be Dominique Strauss-Kahn who would become president, when in fact he wasn't even in a position to run. In 2007, nobody thought Ségolène Royal would be able to be the socialist candidate. 2002, nobody saw Jean-Marie Le Pen uh, becoming a, uh, reaching the runoff against, uh, against Chirac. And the list goes on and on and on. So every single time, the kind of established scenario just gets thrown out of window by the lecturer. And secondly, what is interesting is the government in office always loses the presidential election and this has been the case since the 80s. Now, there's a weird kind of quirk about French politics, which is um, back in the 80s and 90s, uh, you could technically have a, a socialist president with a right-wing government or vice versa, which makes that a bit more complicated. But essentially, the government in office always loses the next presidential election whatsoever. So these things are kind of a word of caution on, on the established scenario, which is Macron would meet Le Pen in a runoff. And win, maybe in the tighter scenario of 2017, but win nonetheless. I think these kind of historical elements are a word of caution. Yeah, and I guess, and I guess your whole, your your point about the historical record of um, government uh, or these government seconded presidential tickets have a, a record of, of losing in, uh, in in the court of public opinion. And I guess part of it uh, boils down to to the um, constitutional sort of like reshuffling that happened when. Uh, the uh, seven-year mandate was was uh, was uh, shortened down to a five-year mandate, right? From Le Quinquennat to, to uh, Le Quinquennat. Uh, when, 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 when did that happen again? Early two thousand. So um, it's from since two thousand and two, the presidential mandate has been of five years. Before that, it was of seven years. Uh, for example, François Mitterrand got two seven-year mandates, so he. Ruled for a total of fourteen years, and that right, and and the reason why that sort of puts sets the government party up for really, um, for really, um, for a really tough kind of dress down in the the electorate whenever it whenever the the president of the republic runs for for re-election. The reason for that is is because I guess the uh, the um, cohabitation, uh, the possibility of uh, two different parties kind of controlling the uh, prime ministership and the presidency, right. The possibility, for instance, having a center-right um, uh, president uh, and a uh, socialist uh, prime minister has, has happened in the uh, Chirac-Jospin uh, uh, cohabitation. Uh, that kind of uh, that kind of uh, gives the president cover, right? It allows it to, to, when it runs, to say, you know, all of these wonderful, beautiful things that I would have done, I wasn't able to do because my prime minister wasn't seconded me, seconding me in parliament. And... Um, and uh, but I do want to go back to something. So right. So and just to kind of finish off on the whole um, center right field, I do think it is super important what you what you've just outlined. We have this, um, as you said, two candidates, not all that different on paper. Um, I do think something we should perhaps highlight is that Xavier Bertrand is di differs from a Picres sort of like Enarch uh, Quadra profile, right? Picres, uh, Paris regional president, right? She's really kind of within the mold of the technocratic um, uh, leader leadership profile right she's been she's been uh, she's been leading this uh, region rather successfully I think a lot of the she gets from successfully bringing uh, some of the post-brexit investments from the UK is certainly going to help her or at least on the right uh, primary that will help her and uh, Xavier Bertrand do, do are you just to, just to kind of finish up on this uh, section are you at all 
Um, what, what do you think his uh, backgrounds? Because you did mention his, you know, a sort of a more provincial, right, type of candidate, which in France I think also uh, can can play to his advantage in, in a number of ways. I mean, this is a guy who um, who was what like an insurance executive. He was a sort of like small town, sort of like uh, insurance executive. So not necessarily someone from the um, from the uh, you know the, the the sort of the politician pipeline, right? Um, and um, But it is very interesting that, again, as you mentioned, these two candidates have left the party's mold, they've left kind of the, the party establishment. Uh, you know, at this stage, it is really hard not to see in Les Républicains kind of an empty shell, and a kind of a, uh, um, just, 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 a, just a, a dead structure already. Um, yeah, because what, they, will end up, they will end up supporting, if Bertrand or Pécresse right. run and are in a good position, Les Républicains will end up supporting them, despite the fact they left the party. I mean, it's a bit of a, it's very humiliating, but I think they, they will have to. There are kind of in-house candidates as well, but I don't think they are as uh, likely. Yeah. And before we switch to maybe some of the other upsets or black swans that could eventually crop up elsewhere in the in the uh, electoral realm, um, let's let's perhaps close off by stressing that uh, one of the one of the difficulties for the center right going into this race is that. A lot of it's um, elder, kind of like respectable um, government experienced um, um, people got tapped. Quite simply, they got tapped by Macron, right? I mean, his first prime minister was uh, a mayor of Lourdes, quite quite sizable um, uh, city, Edouard Philippe, right? And, uh, and a lot of the people who had uh, initially been very active and vocal in the 2017 center-right primary very soon as Penelope Gay started uh, kind of taking a toll on François Fillon's hopes to be the next president. Very soon, they started uh, leaving, defecting. Um, that, and, and perhaps that's also some of the bitter um, memories that uh, the right is also yeah, the, the center-right is also having to grapple with. But, but, but let me ask you, because there is... You know, as you've as you've explained um, a couple of times on the show, there are so many um, unknown variables. There are just so many other black swans that we don't know, like where where are you know they're going to be hitting us. And um, what are some of the other like big uncertainties of this race going into um, the primaries? Well, first of all, there's the scenario on the right, which we we touched on a lot. Um, If, if you get a strong right-wing candidate that takes a few points away from Macron, uh, he, you know, I think the runoff ticket will be around 20%, 25%. So if they manage to, to take a few votes away from, from, from Macron, you know, who knows, you know, that could work out. But I think uh, we've got that already. The other kind of interesting scenario is on the left. And, and first of all, one thing which we have to say is the left is a lot weaker than it has been historically. It's not just in France. It's the case in, in most European countries. Uh, the left has been declining. Social democratic parties in particular have been declining in strength over past years. And the Socialist Party, after François Hollande, Hollande's disastrous five years when he wasn't even in a position of running uh, to defend his, his five years, um, are so weak. Nowadays, they, they are polling at 5%, 6%. I mean, it, it, for a party of this size, it, it, well, for a party of this history, it is pretty, pretty, uh, pretty harsh. It's very harsh. So who else, who else is in the landscape? You've got the Green Party, who have been rising the past few months. 
and you've got the far left with Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the France Insoumise Party. These are the kind of three main actors, the kind of small actors here and there, but three main actors are, are, are the socialists, the Greens, and uh, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the France Insoumise. So let, let's let's begin right from the get-go. I, I, I do think you, you hit a really in, important point in terms of the wider European context for why the social democrats have been plummeting. Uh, and I do piece of context is just to mention also that François Hollande was in the, uh, or at least in the initial days of his, um, uh, uh, you know, the campaign trail ahead of, ahead of uh, 2012, um, he was categorized as being on the hard-edged left of social democracy, kind of like the Belgian social democrats, right? I mean, Le Discours du Bourget, one of his um, uh, core kind of uh, um, campaign speeches was um, you know, essentially along the lines of I will wage war against finance, right? At a time when France right, right, was also kind of struggling with some of the fallout of, of 08. Um, and let me let me ask you right from the start, this is really interesting, the makeup you've just outlined. Um, what are the chances of a sort of popular front like uh, a ticket in the runoff? What are the chances that we end up, uh, whether yeah, you know, what are the chances that um, in front of either uh, Macron or Le Pen in the second round, we find maybe, uh, I, 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 I frankly don't expect anyone from the PS uh, to rise up to this to this level, but what are the chances that Jean-Luc Mélenchon manages to federate both um, the kind of the center left and the old, um, uh, the old kind of, uh, the old kind of politicians who are kind of left without a home in this new landscape and the hardcore left and the hardcore left i i i sincerely doubt it because first of all the question of egos jean-luc Mélenchon has bruised a few people in his political career especially on the left mm. there's a lot of ego a lot of people think jean-luc Mélenchon is too old and should move along uh but socialists uh you know are very humiliated and then they don't want to you know Mélenchon used to be used to be part of a socialist party he was a uh, he was a substitute, essentially. You know, he was on the bench. He wasn't that, that important. And one of the reasons he left is because he felt humiliated. And one of his, uh, one of the reasons he has been so powerful and so driven, one of the reasons that's been dri- driven him for all that time is the destruction of a socialist. Um, so he, at least he achieved that. It's not very clear whether he has, um, uh, he's in a position to actually win himself, but at least he has destroyed the socialist party. And let's, um, let's... So, just yep. remember, can we just uh, remind our audience that he was a an education minister in the '80s, and the sort of the big tent uh, left uh, left uh, really left two hardcore left government uh, Mitterrand oversaw, and he's you, you're 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 essentially you're saying that he is soured on the PS as a party, and that so he he got screwed every time. There's all these party congresses, mm-hmm. and Hollande would cheat. And, you know, the, the way these things would work is you'd have all these different motions and they were called A, B, C, D, and they had, like, impossible socialist names with, like, all the buzzwords you can think of. And and whoever would have the largest share or you had two two or three motions uniting to get more than 50% of a, of a share. And, you know, they cheated all the time. They added votes and one vote. So, you know, it was a, and every single time, Menonchal gets screwed. Like, he would get like 6%, which wasn't true. Yeah. Um, and so, and, and Hollande would find a way to, to screw him over. So, mm. yeah, he doesn't like Hollande. Um, and so that's one of the reasons he, 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 he has a lot of grudges against his old party, because he, he felt he was treated unfairly. He felt like he was representing something and 
wasn't treated properly. Yeah. So and let's let's remind uh, folks as well that uh, the the ticket that Mélenchon um, will be running under uh, is uh, the the unsubmissive France, right? The idea of like les insoumis, right? Which is a big uh, big tent kind of coalition of really like a, really, I mean, the whole nine yards, right? You've got like le parti gauche, which is Mélenchon's native kind of little little uh, home. Um, but it really cuts across all of um, all of the French left, right, all the way up to like these sort of hardcore Maoist, uh, trade unionist, uh, like frac- fractious little parties, right, like the kind of the kind the likes of like Philippe Poutou, etc. But it, this is really a big tent, but kind of a popular front for the, for the left. And um, I wanted to before we kind of leave Jean Luc I did want to ask you, what do you think are the chances that he goes at least into the first round with a fair shot at representing, empowering? Um, you know, uh, the sort of the racial identitarian hardcore left that we've seen, uh, that we've seen, um, you know, rear, rear its ugly head over uh, recent years in, in debates, such as like, obviously, laicity, but also uh, all of the, all, you know, all the uh, crisis that French universities are going through. What are the chances that he kind of um, seizes that niche? So his evolution on this topic, I find, is fascinating and a bit disheartening as well, because... He, he was on the left of the left on these issues, which back then used to be very, very strict on the separation of church and state, uh, very strong on LACT and whatnot. And over the past years, by a mix of, first of all, the demography of his own party, the kind of people who would staff his party would come from NGOs and all the kind of leftist environment, which is much more multicultural, much more uh, open to um, you know American ideas on, on, on race and whatnot. So that's the first thing. And the second thing is also a kind of political reality, which is you want seats, you want to become an MP. Mm-hmm. And more and more, if you look at where these MPs are, they are in the banlieue, they're in the Quartier Nord de Marseille, which are the equivalent of the banlieue in Marseille. Um, and there's a, there's a reality, which is if you're going to come with your very strict uh, lake message on separation of church and state and, and whatnot, it's not going to work as well. Because, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of immigrants, a lot of people from uh, Muslim backgrounds and whatnot. So that's the first reality. And so as a result, second reality, and as a result, he's been he's been changing a lot of these issues, and he he had he went to this very controversial protest against Islamophobia last year, um, which was started by people who were kind of uh, Muslim Brotherhood adjacent and and whatnot, and so so he 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 lost a lot of credit here because the reason he was so strong in 2017 is because he managed to have his very broad tent. Of supporters from the left, but he 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 shedded the word left from his from his dialogue from his discourse back in 2017, because he had this kind of larger populist energy behind him. Now I remember you even had like some right wing voters who were thinking about voting for him because he spoke well, because he all of a sudden he was okay with 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 a flag. He was a bit strict on immigration and whatnot, and so he had this kind of very impressive populist energy. And he was so close; he lost by 600,000 votes. He or he didn't make it to the runoff by 600,000 votes, and that will that really destroyed his morale for the over the next six months or so. Um, nowadays, I don't think so. I think he has, over the past two years, made this evolution towards a kind of multicultural approach, um, and he has shedded the uh, the laicity, you know, the, like, the strong on laicity aspect of his discourse a lot since 2017. And I don't think I don't think he's been able to have a broad ten on this, and especially because I think this is going to become an important issue in issue in the, in the years to come. That's really interesting, and I think it really goes in the direction of kind of what we saw play out in 2017, where at one specific juncture in the campaign, as, you, as you're just explaining, we saw Mélenchon radically shift, or at least, at least radically change the imagery around him, right? Like 
I do remember like right around uh, kind of the early early spring going into May already, go, go, or at least going into the the, the first round in, in uh, 2017, we saw um, Mélenchon, um, or at least it was picked up this way by, by mainstream media, kind of like shifted uh, his campaign's imagery from like a hardcore uh, uh, new left, um, kind of like uh, coalitional, um, perspective with like a lot of like red flags at his at his campaign meetings, right? at his at his, at his um, campaign rallies, right? All of a sudden, right up, leading into um, the 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 first round, we saw a lot more um, cocada. We saw we saw a lot more French imagery, Republican imagery, right? A lot of kind of national uh, national imagery, and um, I was also right around the time when uh, Mélenchon uh, relied on like holograms. To uh, broadcast his speeches right across across several, yeah, I think it was extraordinary because a lot of elder people, um, tr- you know, I think a lot of the elder kind of hardcore left had this sort of unthinking trust on Mélenchon and the idea, the fact that he would lead uh, the presidential, um, uh, um, like the the field that that he would lead the field in the implementation of this sort of like. Um, Futuristic methods. I think. It, I think he. I think that really played to his advantage. And um, uh, you know, this is really interesting because he will. He will remain just as he was. I think in, in uh, 2017 with these two radically different sides of his character. Um, I think he will remain a wild card. I think. I think that there's a lot of people who aren't really. I think, I think we don't really know what to expect from the. Assuming. I agree with you because there's one thing which we can't ignore is that he's a really, really good campaigner. He's an incredible public speaker. He's probably the strongest public speaker in France. As of now, he's kind of the last of his old older generation who are extremely talented, um, you know, who have uh, just speak, you know, when you, when, when you speak, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not a fan of Marshall, whatever, but there is something going on. You know, he has all this history, all these historical references all the time. He's incredibly powerful. Um, so that's something you, you can't ignore. And, you know, Every single time people underestimate him at the start of the presidential election, the same thing in 2012, 2017, and in the end, he does really well. Um, unlike Le Pen, for example, who always starts her campaigns really, really well, but she's a pretty average campaigner and she's in the best public speaker and whatnot. And so she ends up dropping uh, towards the end. Uh, but Mélenchon is kind of the opposite. So so I, I think he has lo- lost a lot of credit uh, over the past few years. Uh, don't forget also there was his huge outburst when he was investigated uh, over his his party finances, he was investigated by the police at like six in the morning in his flat, and he he he, he just he, he exploded. He just got got completely crazy. Started saying, "I am the republic is me. Uh, don't touch me." You know, it, it it was a bit a bit ridiculous, but uh, the images of that were really really damning. You know, him insulting the cops doing doing their job and whatnot. Well, whoever um, yeah, whomever in France is free of uh, the uh, sacralist vein of like i am the republic cast for a stone right <laughs> it's it's kind of, it's kind of <laughs> yeah but he said it he said it openly other people trying to hide it a bit but anyways um but to go back to the question of the sorry the union of the left question i, I don't think it's going to happen formally i don't think it's possible you know maybe the greens and the socialists but i, I don't think like a white ticket from Mélenchon to the greens and, and the socialists is possible what i do think is possible is something along the lines of what we saw in 2017 which is you have kind of equally matched candidates and one of them is starting to take over the rest and there's a snowball effect, which is you get a lot of left-wing voters who vote tactically and you, and you think, you know what, I need my candidate to reach the runoff 
And I'd rather have one left-wing candidate, even if it's not a candidate I prefer, than having to choose between Macron and Le Pen. And so what you could, what you saw in 2017 is the socialist candidate and Jean-Luc Mélenchon being kind of side-by-side side for a long time. And at some point, Mélenchon did really well. His debate performance was incredible. And so there was a snowball effect with plenty of socialist voters leaving in droves to vote Mélenchon. And this is what we could see de facto is not a formal union of the left, but a de facto union of the left where one candidate all of a sudden starts taking over the others and the voters saying, you know what, I'm actually, Mélenchon actually has a chance, let's vote for him rather than vote for whatever candidate was going to do 4% or 6% or whatever. So this is something we might see. Um, but a formal one is complicated. Yeah, which is a good uh, segue into like what, it, what the challenge is on these sort of uh, fringy, uh, like fringe, like um, if you look at both Mélenchon and Marine Le Pen as like the populist insurgents and kind of overlook the ideological difference across both. I mean, you did you did say, which I think is absolutely true, that uh, both uh, covet a an electorate that is out there that is broadly um, broadly overlaps with La France d'en bas, quite simply, right? The sort of like the people whom uh, Michel Houellebecq depicts in his novels, right? And some of his latest work, right? The idea that we have a large, like, populace that is quite simply not served by the current, uh, by the current uh, political system and the policy outputs coming out of it. And I think both are coveting that electorate. And within that electorate, there's a lot of people, I think we tend to overestimate the extent to which the people in La France d'en bas are either, like, rabidly Lupinist or rabidly trade unionist slash hardcore leftist. Um, you know, I do think that both are going to be raised, and you, you're seeing some of that play out already. I think that the I think that uh, Le, uh, Le Pen uh, is already expecting that uh, some some uh, like a, a sizable portion of first round Mélenchon voters will eventually come around to voting for her in the second and the runoff. I think that's that's like already kind of in the m- mindset of both candidates. And um, um, you know, what are what are um, I, I guess. Um, I guess you may want to kind of turn over and we'll cut this off. We'll, we'll, um, I'm losing my train of thought, but um, I guess you, you may want to transition towards, um, yeah, what are, what are, um, yeah, what are, what are some of the other black swans that we haven't discussed yet? Like what's this whole deal with Eric Zimbabwe, for instance? Yeah. So I think what Macron did in 2017, which was extraordinary, is he managed to unite a, I'm not going to talk about the elites because I think it's it's too reductionist, but a kind of elitist bloc um, who were separated between left-wing parties and right-wing parties, but in the end ended up agreeing on a lot of things and were increasingly frustrated that they had to stay in parties which were pandering to their right or pandering to their left. And so all of a sudden you've got Macron and Macron says, you know what, you guys on the left and you guys are right, we're actually a lot closer than you think. Let's create one big party and uh, we'll represent your, your, your interests and your ideals a lot better. And this is how you've kind of pure pro-European party... Uh, kind of fiscally um, uh, a conservative party, a socially liberal party, in many ways represented the the elitist bloc on the right and the left and united them. But on the flip side, there hasn't been this kind of unifying of a populist bloc. This populist bloc had been has been divided to some extent on the far left, but mostly on the far right and among people who don't vote the abstentionists. What we saw in twenty. Uh, in 2019, with, with in 2018, with the Gilets Jaunes, I think is the closest thing we saw to the unification of this populist bloc. You have these people who aren't that political, who all of a sudden feel like they've been 
you know, because Matthew Macron, you know, had all these very arrogant um, comments off the cuff, which were really provocative and whatnot. And it was this increasing, increasing feeling that there was this out of touch elitist government being very arrogant with, you know, the Légion d'en bas, with the, the, uh, the, the common people. And so they, they not only revolted against, against Macron, but they created a sense of common strength, a strength of a feeling of common identity. Because they didn't realize they were this powerful. They got Macron to spend 25 billion, or now it seems like nothing, but back then 25 billion euros seemed like a lot of money nowadays. We're throwing, we're throwing billions every day. But back then, 25 billion was, was, was a huge, huge change, a huge shift in Macron, which was running much more supply side uh, uh, economics. And they realized their strength. And I think, I think this kind of feeling of, of, of common strength, this kind of populist bloc, is something which someone will want to harness at some point. Le Pen has a part of that block, but she's Le Pen, so her name is a bit divisive and whatnot. And so she can't reach that block entirely. But you could have a... It doesn't have to be politician. Look what happened in, in, in Ukraine. It was a comedian. Look what happened in Italy. It was Beppe Grillo, another comedian. Uh, it could be a singer. It could be, you know, like Patrick Sébastien, for those who know him as a pretty funny funny uh, musician or comedian. Um, you know, I, I, I think we could see that. It could be a, a, an army man like General de Villiers, who used to be Macron's top general, uh, who has kind of floated he might run, maybe not, probably not. And the other wild card, which I think is the more likely of the scenarios, is Eric Zemmour. Eric Zemmour, for people who don't know him, is a bit like, think Tucker Carlson in France. Um, he's been on TV for the past 15 years. He wrote a, a few books which sold really, really well on French history, on French politics and whatnot. He's very much on the right. He is Eurosceptic anti-immigration, very, very tough on Islam, but also, you know, kind of traditionally Gaullist in the sense that he thinks the state should intervene a lot in the, in, in the economy and, uh, you know, very, very critical of globalization and whatnot. And so he's become very popular over the past few years on on, on kind of a fringe right between the Républicains and Rassemblement National. And he doesn't like Le Pen. He thinks she's incompetent. He thinks he's not she's not up to it and, and whatnot. And so he's thinking about running. And that, that would that could change a few things. First of all, very cynically, could weaken Le Pen. So maybe maybe Macron would like uh, Zemmour to run and, and weaken Le Pen. Um, but thing is, I don't think Zemmour. As much as a wild card, he, as much of a wild card he could be, I don't think he has potential to unify that populist bloc because I think he is too identified on the right, too identified with politics to do that. I think it would have to be someone like like uh, Zelensky in Ukraine or Beppe Grillo, someone who has kind of a wider non-political appeal. Um, and also, I think if you look at Zemmour, there's a there's a physical attraction you need to create when you're presidential candidate. You need to. You know, there's a reason why Hollande did a diet before running in 2012. People need, to, people need to physically love their president to some extent. And I, you look at Zemmour, he's kind of intellectually charismatic, but he's not physically charismatic in any of those ways. Um, so, we, yeah, we, we could, we, so, yeah, I think, I think we're, um, we're not, we could very well see a populist upset, which with, with someone we, we haven't even talked about in this podcast so far. Um, so I think that's something we need to keep an, an eye on. Which makes the, the race just so um, riveting and, and, and truly like, Ripping, right? Like, um, there, there, this, this really is shaping up to be one of the most uncertain races of, of Fifth Republic, uh, Fifth, Fifth Republic history, right? Uh, 
and uh, as, as, as uncertain and as uh, upsetting uh, the, the 2017 race already was in a lot of ways. And uh, I mean, look, no, nobody expected what the outcome of 2017 would be uh, a short few months in advance. But at this point already in the run up to the race, we are, I think, pretty clueless as to what, as to, or at least how, uh, I mean, the, the polling for the, fir- for, the, for the first round is also uh, historically unstable, like at this point, uh, comparatively. Um, um, I, I think if you uh, uh, compare that to historical standard. Uh, now, I, I thought some of the things you explained about Zimov were so interesting. I mean, here's like uh, someone who like, I think uh, early on in his youth uh, wanted to be, wanted to be part of La Technosphere, right? Wanted to be the technocratic right, center-right leader as part of the Gaullist uh, legacy uh, I think filled his in uh, examination right. Uh, you know, he he, he kind of twice right, um, and then he's had this very brilliant. I mean, he did come from uh, Sciences Po earlier, so he's kind of like networked into some of these um, circles. But he did have and just an outstanding intellectual career. I, I would say popular intellectual career more so than actual like academic intellectual. But some of his books, again, like they have been they've been as you said they've been read. Um, almost universally across some of these like France d'en bas uh, swaths of the territory where, you know, these people are looking for answers and they're looking for a candidate and they've, they've read Zemmour and they, uh, I think they can, as you said, they can relate to him uh, on a number of levels, not so much again on his charisma, but I do think that, you know, if we're looking for a candidate who can um, provide yet another op- upset and kind of gather up and round up some of the populist, uh, anger that is brewing on both the right and the left, and maybe unify that and and and, and make it cohesive and coherent and able to uh, genuinely, um, genuinely, um, you know, have a say in in this in this race. I think I think we should be thinking of, of Zemmour uh, pretty pretty prominently. Uh, I, I I will push back a little bit on that because he he is widely read, but widely read nowadays is not the same thing as widely read. 50 years ago. Um, and he is, you know, so there was a few polls I will tr- that chart him out. He's at 13%, which isn't bad on your name only, uh, but isn't isn't a huge hit either. So I, I think if you really want someone to unify this kind of amorphous populist bloc, which we saw with Gilles Jaune, it would have to be someone who is much less identified with politics, a comedian, something like that. So just a, a, a few points before we go. Some of the issues I think we need to talk. First of all, Michel Barnier is not going to run. Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure who in Brussels uh, floated that idea. It's, it, it's stupid. He's a strong uh, politician. He has, a, he has had an incredible career and whatnot. But first of all, he doesn't have his kind of charisma I was talking about. Mm. Jacques Chirac uh, called him the ski instructor. Mac in the <laughs> um, so uh, he's not going to be running with something. The Greens, um, you know, there's a, there's a huge energy around the Greens over the past few, few months. They did a very strong performance at the European election. They did good performance at the latest uh, municipal elections. But first of all, the Greens always do pretty well at the election, uh, European elections. Mm. And they just crash and burn every time a presidential election. I mean, it, it is every single time. So, so you know, a, a word of warning about that. I, the Greens are strong on local issues, strong kind of international issues. On the one side, they'll talk about your pollution, your your 
uh, your your issues with cars in cities and you know, kind of very local issues. And the other other side, I talk about you know huge global warming issues and mm. international agreements and whatnot. And the kind of national sphere is one which they kind of struggle to do because yeah. the German yeah. Greens could be the French Greens, could be the British Greens. You know, they, they, there's not no strong national identification. Yeah. And in an election which is so national, I think they're not going to they're not going to do well. Yeah, and, it, it is um, going to be a national race. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it is going to be a national race. So, yeah, because, you know, especially because I think some of the main issues which will dominate 2022 will be the issue of, uh, you know, which we've covered with Gilles Kepel, the issue of uh, Islamist separatism. And I think on these issues are extremely, extremely weak, extremely, extremely weak. Mm. Um, and um, and the other one in which I think will be a strong one will be kind of economic patriotism post-COVID mm. and whatnot. Mm. And, I, and I think on the left, they are not the strongest on this issue. I could see a more traditional left-wing candidate, like maybe Arnaud Montebourg or mm. someone like that, uh, become candidate. But I, I really don't see the Greens doing well in in, in 2022. Yeah, which um, you know, which is a good way to, to wrap things up. Uh, this this will be uh, majorly a national race. I think some of the uh, anger that is already building up in terms of the the widening gulf that a lot of the um, that a lot of you know popular background kind of French, like average Joe background, like small town like not really into politics all that much but if to the extent they're into politics they're into politics in a very angry way uh i think that a lot of the people that uh that all these varying parties are are, are uh, vying for uh are going to be i think are gonna are, i think are going to be a lot angrier uh by the time we reconvene to um discuss the first round than they're already now i think the anger is is building um i think the way i think uh, a lot of it is just just COVID uh, quantum, uh, like yeah. how I mean, I mean, sure. I mean, the government has, as as every government is, the go- the government is trying to um, to to alleviate and to relieve some of the financial pressures and at the kitchen table through very uh, channels. But um, what what uh, what can really be um, what what cannot really be solved is the sense. That there is, there was already a very big and wide disconnect between the political class and the rest of the country, and that COVID is furthering uh, those goals, right? That that you know that that the French political class are weathering COVID smoothly and just fine. They're doing fine. Uh, they're not having. I mean, they have these pensions and they have these uh, you know um, personal chauffeurs, and they're they're not having to uh, you mm. know, to um, uh, to uh, you know. Um, they're not having to like be inventive to boucler la fin moi, right? They have their, their yeah. financial prosperity is assured, and, um, and I do think that's going to play out massively, and the anger is going to be building. But I'm so glad we got into a lot of the uh, things that we can already glean from in terms of uh, who are the candidates going to be, what are the procedural, um, what are the procedural things to know, and, and what are the black swans that people can can expect. Uh, to crop up, so I'm, I'm so glad we did this, and thank you so much for uh, for walking us through all of that, Francois. And uh, we hope to see your, we hope to catch our audience in a, in a future episode. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. See you next week. Thank you.